Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you this week. Hey, guys. Good to catch up, guys. Now, I'm going to start handing out, gentlemen, demerit points off the top of the show because <laughs> listeners can't see this, but I am sporting a beautiful white hub baseball cap with a blue logo emblazoned on the front. And I gave you guys hats when we all gathered together for our second staff offsite uh, earlier this week. And you're not wearing them. What's mine up? Is, mine is right there behind me. Like, <laughs> I can't wear it with my headphones, but I tried to put it in the shot. It didn't quite work. <laughs> nice. Okay, Sean, you truly are like not being a team player. That's right. <laughs> I won't show my hub tattoo. Um... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, okay, guys, uh, let's dig in here. And I want to start in the first half of the show to talk about you know, the amazing week in UK politics, but we're not going to go over that ground. We did an excellent job. Stuart did uh, this Friday, the, uh, what are we, boy, the 21st of October and the pages of the hub, uh, all kinds of original coverage on the trust resignation, the prime minister of Great Britain stepping down after 45 short days. Uh, Check out those articles, analysis and insight. We got it all for you right now at the hub.ca. But let's bring it back to Canada, because uh, I think, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a kind of powerful object lesson um, that is unfolding uh, for governments around the world, especially ones like Canada that do not ex- enjoy the exorbitant privilege, as it's called, of a reserve currency and have to borrow uh, money on international markets and international markets attitudes about smaller countries like Canada and the UK kind of matter in terms of public finance. So let me come to you first, Sean, what are you hearing? You've spent time in government. Uh, Do you think there's a changing mood in Ottawa? Do you think the events in the UK have kind of registered with uh, officialdom in terms of a new set of risks Facing a country, a small country like Canada, I know we're not always allowed to say that, but we are a small country with a lot of debt, not a lot of productivity, kind of somewhat more abundant economy. I don't know, Sean, I put it all together. It makes me nervous. Yeah, I, I, one can't help but think that it's going to produce a bit of a shift in the balance of power in Ottawa. You know, one of the things that's uh, well known in Ottawa, but maybe not elsewhere in the country is that the Department of Finance, you know, really does see itself as the bulwark against uh, excessive spending. And of course, over the past several years, it's been losing that fight. Um, um, and, and so it, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, in the aftermath of the trust government's mini budget and the extraordinary market reaction that we had the Canadian finance minister, Christia Freeland, send out letters uh, to her cabinet colleagues that were ostensibly leaked somewhere along the way um, insisting that any new spending proposals to be considered in next uh, uh, late winter's budget needs to be offset 
with accompanying spending reductions. This is obviously, uh, a, 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 in theory anyway, a, a big change from the, the government's kind of fiscal positioning really since it took office in 2015. And so I, I guess in a nutshell, I'm thinking that uh, what's gone on over the past several weeks in the UK may have strengthened the, the kind of arm of the Department of Finance in Ottawa and given it the kind of power to push back and play the challenge function that it has historically played, um, but, has, but has been a bit um, uh, less present and relevant um, really since 2015. So Stuart, uh, there was a speech that Christopher Friedland gave uh, recently. I heard it kind of clipped on the news. Uh, you know, it's a really different tone from the government, you know, saying in effect, hard times are ahead. Uh, we are heading, we are in for an economic slowdown. Uh, mortgage rates will rise. Uh, again, trying to portray this as something that's happening, you know, around the world to all advanced economies, which is true, but boy, it seems a long way from sunny days and sunny ways. Yeah. I think this will be a really interesting year or two because, you know, and in the financial crisis, we had Stephen Harper in the job and he was an economist and I, my sense is that Canadians were a little unsure about Stephen Harper until that moment, and he just seemed to fit the moment. Um, and I wonder, you know, this government has had some good times that I think they really used to the max. And then they had the COVID crisis, which was, you know, generational crisis, but the response to that crisis was about spending lots and lots of money. So it wasn't anything that was sort of outside of their comfort zone. And I think this will be a really interesting uh, couple of years because it will show, it'll tell us a lot about what Justin Trudeau's plans are, because when you're thinking short-term and when you're thinking long-term, I think you do different things in these situations, but it'll also show us temperamentally, you know, where they're at and how they'll be able to handle this. And I, I think having Pierre Polyev in opposition is, um, you know, I, I suspect they would have preferred Aaron O'Toole or someone like that in opposition in these times because he is uh, an attack dog. So um, I, I honestly don't know how this is going to go. I know Christia Freeland um, didn't get into finance for this kind of job. And it's funny because Bill Marneau, when he was the finance minister, I think he got into finance for another job too. And he felt weird cutting all the checks. So it's almost like this government has just had the wrong roster for these moments. And I, I'm just curious how it's all going to play out. Do we have, Sean, I'm not saying the wrong prime minister pejoratively, but just, you know, a leader that, again, had a kind of theory of government that there was an ability in an era of ultra low interest rates that's now in the rearview mirror to to borrow significant sums of, of money, uh, to run uh, large structural deficits well before COVID um, that have continued through COVID and are now continuing after COVID. It, I just wonder, Sean, about the prime minister's own inclinations, appetites, attitude for, if you look at the UK ex experience, it's, it's kind of a forced austerity. I mean, I think that, I think we have to be honest about what is coming. Um, there is going to be a lot of pressure. It's already happening. The Canadian currency has fallen precipitously over the last month. We're seeing Canadian long-term uh, bond yields up sharply because um, we have to you know, compete with the higher yields coming out of the United States and a general perception on the part of bondholders that they have to be paid for inflation. Inflation is eating away at their future returns. The longer they hold those bonds, the longer dated those bonds are, 
much of our government, you know, boring 10, five year, you know, this, this is, as I wrote in the hub on Friday today, you know, it's the kind of return of the bond vigilantes and they're not taking prisoners, they're taking heads. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a great line. And, and as you say, Justin Trudeau didn't get into politics um, to be parsimonious. Um, you know, I think we've seen the real Justin Trudeau over the, the, the first five or so years of his prime ministership. But um, you know, where I might slightly disagree with, with Stuart is there's a reason liberals have governed for most of, of Canadian history. Um, they uh, have, you know, it, it's not cliche to say as a centrist party, they've been able to uh, weave and bob uh, from left to right. And one help, can't help but think that Pierre Polyev represents a kind of useful foil um, to, uh, um, you know, in effect, galvanize the center-left voters that they need to remain in power. So even as uh, we see, uh, uh, um, you know, a reduction in kind of the government's ambition about spending and, and activism, they'll be able to say, you know, you may not like this, but it, it, it would be much, much worse uh, in a world in which Polyev is has his hands on uh, the, the government's balance sheet, and and, and so I, I, it'll be a fascinating to see. I think, in a way, the opportunity opens up if the government is genuinely committed uh, to greater restraint than we've seen, which I think remains an open question. It may open up an opportunity for the New Democrats to say, if you're a progressive, you know this government has failed you on electoral reform and on other issues that progressives care about, and now it's effectively adopting a kind of uh, a Stephen Harper fiscal policy. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll wait to see how it plays out. But I, I think the liberals um, may actually like having Polyev as as their foil um, through uh, this upcoming budget cycle. What really amazed me about the whole trust issues uh, and the collapse of our government, really, again, I think at the hands of international financial markets, um, was the fact that the the tax cuts that you were proposing weren't actually that large. I mean, yes, a couple billion pounds sounds like a lot, but in the context of UK's overall fiscal capacity, it was small. Maybe the the bad reaction in the bond and currency markets had to do with the many tens of billions of dollars of proposed energy subsidies, but it's not actually clear now that energy prices have fallen precipitously in the UK that, that they're going to have to deploy those funds maybe at the scale originally envisioned. The reason I mention all this is it seems like the threshold of freakouts about the financial solvency of countries, again, that are non-reserve currencies, uh, that don't have the ability to, like Japan, Europe, uh, the United States, to, to borrow large sums of money on the basis that people actually use their currency to do things like buy oil or buy bonds or settle international trade, that Stuart our threshold might be quite low too. And I just think about the urgent issues that are pressing on this government, healthcare, uh, net zero. I mean, accept it or not, think it's real or not. They have a lot of political pressure um, coming down on them to move on these big items. I think healthcare is obviously the most urgent in terms of public anxiety about what we're seeing in wait times and emergency rooms. What happens here? Like, how do how does a government shift? How do you do a one eighty where suddenly you're saying the cupboard's bare? We can't we can't transfer as Paul Martin did whatever it was tens of billions of dollars to the province to solve healthcare 
for a generation. Yeah, actually, just by coincidence, I happened to be looking at a chart from the budget yesterday um, on the growth of the Canada Health Transfer, and there is a post-pandemic bonus on all of those transfers. It's a, it's a lot of money going out, and the premiers are demanding even more exorbitant uh, increases to that transfer. So um, it, it's it is a problem, and I. The thing that I don't quite know, I think maybe we're starting to see it. And I think also the signals from the market will maybe not allow the liberals to fool themselves. But the thing that's been coming home to me lately is that this was a very unique situation for the past decade or so. This The situation that liberals came into, they were in some quarters portrayed as like, you know, politically very savvy for doing what they did. But I think that's true because they realized what the circumstances were and used it to their advantage. But um, the kind of programs they were doing um, without raising any revenues and just sort of promising Canadians, we'll give you that. We won't make it cost you anything either. Um, you couldn't have done that any other time. And if they were aware that this was sort of a rare moment that they could take advantage of and that it was doomed to end at some point, that's probably a good realistic point of view. But if they had kind of fooled themselves into thinking that they'd like innovated here in government and they'd figured out some solution that nobody else had figured out, um, they could be in trouble. And it is also a dispositional shift because you're right, it's about their demeanor when they talk to Canadians and it's about what they promise down the road and the expectations they build. So this becomes sort of a, a, a big problem, like almost a holistic problem for them as a government, as a political party too. Yeah, let me just put a couple of things on, on the table in response to Stuart's point. First of all, uh, Rudyard and Stuart, I've, I've been doing some analysis over the past couple of days that I hope to put uh, at, up at the hub next week, um, looking at government revenue and government spending really since 2008-9. And what's fascinating is uh, we've been getting about uh, $0.90 dollars worth of spending, uh, and but only putting $0.90 cents, um, in uh, on, on average over that uh, period of time. So um, not only will there be growing pressure to close that gap, um, as Rudyard says, there's a lot of other extenuating pressures on the table, healthcare, um, getting to 2% of, of, of GDP on NATO spending, which we're, we continue to talk about, but there doesn't seem to be much movement on. I, I do think that kind of fundamentally, um, we're going to need to have a, a kind of conversation about how big a government do we want and how much are we prepared to pay for? And as, as you say, Stuart, we have, we've been relieved from that conversation for the better part of a decade. I'll, I'll just make a, a second point quickly. Uh, you know, it, it, it seems to me um, that uh, it, it comes back to my earlier point about the Department of, of Finance. Uh, you know, I, I think we're going to see finance in a position to kind of assert itself more within the federal government and, um, you know, there are all of these kind of pet projects um, that uh, that have managed to get kind of across the, the line in the past, I think, are going to face um, greater scrutiny. And hopefully that leads, I guess, you know, just in some um, to a much clearer focus on what government should do and what government shouldn't do and how we think about uh, the, the trade-offs. And mm -hmm. uh, as I said in last week's episode, I, I, hopefully that pushes us in the direction of of more structural changes, changes that don't necessarily come with uh, dollars attached to them, but that can provide real kind of economic lift. Um, you know, think of regulatory reform, think of interprovincial trade, um, think of of any number of other issues that uh, that in a world of easy money, governments have been able to 
set aside. I think now um, those will, um, you know, find themselves, um, you know, hopefully kind of renewed um, interest and debate. Yeah, let me uh, wrap this segment up. But just I would even go one step further. I think in a fascinating way for the last decade in this era of zero bound interest rates, basically free money for governments. And then in times of crises, central banks stepping in and literally buying uh, unlimited quantities of government bonds to artificially suppress borrowing costs, that the entire center-right argument about the nature and scope of government in our lives was fighting its fight with one hand tied behind its back. So I, I think this is healthy. Um, you may not prescribe to a center-right vision of the economy of you know less regulation, uh, more opportunity, lower taxes, but at least hopefully we could all agree it's better for us to have fair fights. It's better for us to have different ideological visions of the country clashing with each other on terms that are roughly equal, that have roughly the same uh, cost-benefit analysis, the same types of trade-offs that people can think through in terms of how it actually impacts their day-to-day lives. So I think we're thankfully Maybe it's a it's a silver lining. It's hard to look for one in terms of rising inflation and its effects on all of us. But at least this kind of gets our politics back to a more level uh, battlefield of ideas, where uh, suddenly it's not always the gut reaction, the instinct, the impulse to spend more. Frankly, because it often aligns most closely with anyone's short-term political objectives in the moment. When we come back from this break, we're going to talk call signs. That's right. There's a little bit of brouhaha going on in the Air Force, but also in the media. Kind of fascinating story here about the Canadian Forces running into some trouble with call signs. I'll also try to think up some call signs for Stuart and Sean. (laughs) Give me this break and I'll be back on the other side. Uh, Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. Wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to The Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and then the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive per diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries, but we think you're really going to enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via per diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub podcast. Now back to our program. Hub listeners, you are back for the Friday Roundtable. Uh, I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. I promised call signs for both of you. I think Stuart's got to be red. Okay, he's got red hair. We'll call him red. Sean, uh, boy, I could go a lot of directions here, but maybe beard, because <laughs> he's, I don't know, he's got crazy facial hair. This is a guy who shows up one day on Zoom like a baby's bottom. And then 24 hours later, he's like the caveman who's come <laughs> out of uh, hibernation. So I don't know what's going on with the hair follicles there, Sean, but 
I wish I had some of inflation. those on the top of inflation. <laughs> inflation. <laughs> but guys, here's what I want to talk about. I'm going to come to Stuart first on this because there's a fascinating media piece to this. The Canadian Forces is in trouble again uh, around issues of supposed sexual, I don't know, it's not, maybe it is discrimination in this case, but definitely kind of misbehaving here. Supposedly a, a call sign, and this is what, you know, Top Gun, these guys, Phoenix, Bird, I forget what all the names are from that movie. They call themselves in their cockpits. This This guy got kind of informally awarded a call sign that's, I guess, so, I don't know, so uh, sexist, so derogatory that the CBC and the rest of the media won't even tell us what it is, Stuart. I don't know. There's so many levels to pick away at this thing, uh, but let's start with the media. And then I'm happy to talk about the military because uh, I think there is another side to this. It's not an excuse for this, but it's also realizing what we ask our men and women in the military to actually do for us uh, day in and day out. Yeah, I know we've all been scouring Twitter and the dark side of the internet to try and figure out what this was. And I, this CBC story, though, was written by Murray Brewster, who's like one of the best journalists in Canada. He's been around a long time and covered defense. Um, I'm inclined to trust him if he says it's so bad that it shouldn't be in print. But there's something about this because this is starting to become a trend. There was a CBC story out of Alberta um, about a blog that Danielle Smith, the new premier, linked to, and they didn't want to even say what the blog was um, for fear of raising its profile, is what they said in this story. And I, this is one of those things where, you know, maybe 20 years ago when, you know, the public trusted the media a little bit more, you could do that. But um, I just, <laughs> there's part of me that thinks if the media talks about a problematic blog, they might be talking about like National Review or something like that. We just don't know uh, <laughs> what it might be. And they've been wrong about a few things like this before. So I, I think that's something we've tried to do at the Hub, which is not treat our readers like children and allow them to see what we're talking about. I I don't think that if a bunch of people read the name of this blog in CBC, it's going to convert them all to anti-Semites or Nazis or whatever. I just don't think that's how these things work. Um, but I think part of this is that media has sort of um, overstated how much words matter, like a, a good word or a bad word seems to be a lot of what they talk about here. Um, and then this idea that they're sort of these gatekeepers, um, they're the ones holding back the forces of populism and racism and bigotry. And, you know, even if they mention this, um, it, it could be devastating. I just don't think that's right. Um, so in this story, it does, I'm, I'm inclined to trust Murray Brewster, but I hope this isn't a trend that we start seeing more of in the media. Oh, that's a great, great insight there, Stuart. How, how much of it, let me pick up on that, because you're our, you know, you're, you're, you're our, our journalist, one of our key journalists on staff. How much of it do you think the self-censorship here reflects trying to kind of manage the internal politics in the newsroom. You know, we've had on the podcast before Batyaja Ungar Sargon, whose book Woke Media talks a bit about kind of the, the rise of activist journalism and the kind of shift in the ideological center of gravity in most newsrooms. How much do you think that plays here? Yeah, I, d I don't want to minimize how seriously people take these decisions. And partly, you know, that we do make a lot of decisions like this in the media. One of the first um, really crazy situations I was in was, as a journalist was the Hub Mall shooting in Edmonton, where this happened at like midnight. I was working the four to 12 shift with a bunch of other young people. We basically worked through the night 
um, writing this story. Uh, and at first, for the first couple of hours, it was a bunch of people who were, you know, first year, second year, third year journalists. And then the editor, uh, the managing editor came in and said, take that out of your story. We don't want that in there. That's a grotesque detail that's going to be really appalling to people. And she was right <laughs> about everything that we had done. But we were just, you know, working, uh, you know, we were running on fumes and just working as hard as we could. Um, some of this stuff you do need to keep out of your story for taste reasons. Um, but I actually think what you said is correct, that there is a lot of like looking over your shoulder and you don't want to offend people uh, going on these days. And I would say that's especially true at the CBC. Um, and another part of it is that I think that there's a change in how journalists see themselves. I think that even though they may not self-consciously call themselves activists, there is an activist idea in why they do the job. And most of that is just idealism, people who want to make a difference in the world. Um, but I think maybe these things start to get counterproductive when, uh, you know, if you look like you're withholding information, people start to trust you less. Yeah, there was a recent example in Toronto where, and it's serious and nothing to joke about, where um, an individual was thought to have uh, interfered with children in a playground or somehow perceived as a as a complaint lodged against him. Uh, this individual happened to be transgendered and the descriptions of the individual in the reporting and even by the statement released by the Toronto Police Services was that it was a she. When in fact, it was a he, it was a biological male who was engaging in this behavior. So for a child possibly who had been a subject of unwanted attention, that could cause a lot of confusion on the part of the parents communicating to that child in that neighborhood. Did this person touch you? Did she touch you? No, she didn't touch me. She was a, a he. It, it just, I, I don't know. I, I worry, guys, that you know, we need the media. We need information to be um, accurate, to, um, to tell us, in fact, what happens so we can make decisions. Now, Maybe this call sign truly is horrible. Um, uh, you know, I'll reserve judgment on that. If I can't, we can't find it on Twitter or anywhere. If anyone knows what it is, send us an email. We'll find some way to blooperize it and post it to the show notes uh, so that adults can figure it out. But I, I want to know. I want, I want, like again, could you blooperize it? Could you give it to me in such a way that I could deduce what it is so that I can make a reasonable judgment as to whether the brass in the military is overreacting or not, whether this is appropriate. Um, I don't know, Sean, I don't know what you think. I just, I, I, there is, Stuart's right. There's this kind of coddling, there's this clutching of pearls, there's this, this inability to kind of understand that, like, this is the core of the story. The call sign is the core of the story. The entire story, the entire government response, the extent to which this pilot is being disciplined, the extent to which the Air Force is now going down another bureaucratic rabbit hole to create an official process through which pilot call signs will now be tabled and approved by a committee of blah, 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 blah. Yeah, uh, let me just pull up the conversation a bit because I, I think there's a lot of insight here. I think both of you at at a fundamental level are talking about the state of our elite institutions and public trust in institutions. I mentioned in the previous conversation, you know, the growing demands from our allies to increase our defense spending to 2% of GDP. There, there's a whole host of reasons why that hasn't happened. You know, some of it is political, that uh, the political parties have decided that in a world of 
some scarcity, it's better to dedicate resources to voters than it is to defense. But part of it, let me just say in defense of the Trudeau government and, and the previous Harper government, in which I served, part of it is just a complete lack of trust in our Department of National Defense. Um, you know, I, I think I think this is an institution that we don't acknowledge publicly is a complete disaster. Um, you know, it is top heavy, full of all of these career bureaucrats in Ottawa. Um, there's not enough money spent on the front lines. It's clearly an old boys club. We've seen the stories over the past few years of, you know, people at the top concealing really terrible uh, episodes of sexual harassment, sexual assault. We have the chief of defense staff, uh, you know, a, a series of chiefs of the defense staff caught up in these scandals. Like, I actually think this is an organization that fundamentally needs to be kind of brought down to the ground and, and, and rebuilt. Um, and until there is that trust, not just on the part of the Canadians, but also just frankly on the part of the political class, there's going to be a real reluctance to increase um, defense spending to get somewhere around 2%. So in a way, the failures of this institution, the lack of trust is actually becoming like a geopolitical issue for Canada. And and so, yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right, that um, uh, across the board from journalists, uh, journalistic organizations to, to the national, the Department of National Defense, uh, to universities, etc. Uh, we have a kind of serious issue where uh, a lot of these, um, you know, ideological trends, call it what you want, identity politics, wokeism, whatever it is, um, is creating greater and greater distance between these organizations uh, and institutions and the Canadian public. And that's producing serious trust issues um, that uh, that I, I think is a, a, a real risk for the country. Well, let's just end, Stuart, maybe on, you know, the men and women in the Canadian forces. Obviously, the women should uh, absolutely demand and expect, um, you know, uh, uh, sexual harassment-free workplace. I guess what I struggle with a bit is that when you you know when I've spent some time with the mil Canadian military in Afghanistan and other kind of theaters of operation, and you know you are trying to select for aggressive people. Okay, these are people that you have given um, the state sanction. Let's be blunt about what it is to go out and kill other people on your behalf. And I just I guess I just wonder about the state of the military torn between you know, scandal, as, you know, Sean said, uh, bureaucracy and inability to procure weapon systems, uh, but at the same time, trying desperately, as every military is, to create a culture of warriors. Now, that doesn't absolve what this call sign is. And again, I can't make a judgment about the call sign, whether it's appropriate or not, or within the realm of what could conceivably be appropriate, because the CBC and nobody will tell me what it is. Yeah, I would encourage anyone to, if you read Stanley McChrystal, the U.S. General's books and his sort of lessons on leadership, it's they're walking a high wire. And it, I think that they all know that. And anyone, if you read about the SEALs and things like that, it's what they're trying to do is um, funnel that masculinity, that toxic masculinity into something productive. And, you know, I mean, even if you read the Odyssey, that's what the, the Greeks were talking about is you're trying to figure out a way to get virtue out of that. Um, the, the thing that I think concerns me the most is, and if anyone's watching the, the inquiry right now into the Emergencies Act in Ottawa, the chaos and the unseriousness in the Ottawa police force, 
it is resembles what we're seeing sometimes in our armed forces. And this is a problem of talent. It's a problem of the devaluing of the institutions where, you know, if you're someone who's ambitious and worthwhile, you probably are not going to go into that kind of thing. And every now and then some people do. And um, the problem is they're being swamped by people who are kind of mediocre. And I think that's what we're seeing in our armed forces. And when you read that story about this call sign, um, it is a lot of very mediocre and weak leadership. Um, and I think that it really is the fundamental problem. Okay, guys, uh, let's put a pin in it there. But uh, if anyone finds out what the call sign is, uh, Stuart's over the age of 18. He can receive that as a suggestion. What's the email, Stuart, that we use for uh, editorial? DMs are open on Twitter. <laughs> editorial at the hub.ca. <laughs> editorial at the hub.ca. Uh, send it to us and we will, again, I think the CBC could have kind of, I don't know, turned it into a wordle. Okay. And somehow allowed the 18 and over crowd to figure this out and then, and then make a judgment. And maybe the judgment should be one of absolute condemnation and scorn and a five alarm fire, but we just don't know because I guess, you know, our, my years are, cannot be uh, scarred with the you know, these words. Can, can I just say, Roger, that it took me the full episode, but I finally figured out the right call sign for you. Uh, as <laughs> listeners know, amongst Roger's various responsibilities at the hub, it's helping to keep the, the lights on um, through his business development efforts. And so I think we'll call you Bagman. <laughs> I thought blowhard. I thought blowhard <laughs> could be a good call sign for me. Okay, red beard. We'll see you again next week. Take care, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>